Good morning. Good morning. Oh. I'm the sound guy this morning, so I don't know how to fix that right now. Um, Rachel has the uh, iPad. Okay, I think we're good. Can you guys still hear me? Okay, great. Anybody know what pitch that was? An E. Um, well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Brendan. I'm one of the pastors here at Victory Point, and I'm glad to be here with you this morning. Um, and thank you, John and Tina, for sharing your story this morning. Uh, that was uh, quite a beautiful day yesterday. Perfect day for a baptism. The water was refreshing. And uh, it's cool when you, when you uh, with baptism in Lake Michigan, you have this sense that God is baptizing John and Tina with the waves coming in. And um, and then, the, of course, the, the doves flying overhead, the flock of doves flying overhead was uh, very uh, timely. But uh, the early church was really serious about baptism. In fact, um, the early church made a point not to let anyone worship with them unless they were baptized. Um, which, why was that? Why were they so, so adamant about that? It's because they were experiencing intense suffering and persecution. The early church was a very small religious sect that was being persecuted against. And all that they had, they didn't have buildings, they didn't have doctrines or documents, they didn't have any structures like that. All they had was the life of Jesus lived out in community. That's all they had. So they had to make sure to protect it. Say, if you're part of this church, you better be living this stuff out because it's our only chance. Our only chance to survive as a movement of Christ followers, is to be on mission, living out Jesus' ways every single day in our lives. And so baptism was a process by which they marked someone's journey into the faith community to say, you've been crucified now with Christ. It's no longer you who live, but Christ lives in you. It's not about you anymore. It's not about your comfort or your will. It's about Jesus. You are now living Jesus' life, not your own life anymore. So that's what's true of you guys. And that's why we marked that. You guys were realizing Christ's life is in us now. This is the most defining thing about us. It's a statement of identity. What's true of us right now is that we are followers of Jesus. And that means we live differently. And for those of us in this room who've been baptized, that's the same call for us this morning, that we are accountable to that. We're accountable to living out Christ's ways, especially because that means we come into conflict with the culture around us. And if we find that we're not coming into conflict with the culture around us, we have to ask ourselves, are we really living the life of Jesus? Are we really living into our identity as baptized Christians, people who are called to live in the way of Jesus? So that's my challenge for us this morning as we go into the scriptures, is what is our witness? We're going to look at a story from Acts 16, if you have your Bibles. And um, it's a little bit longer of a passage. I thought a fun way to engage with the passage could be um, if I could ask for six volunteers, especially if you are of the younger crowd, it'd be really fun. But could I have six volunteers, please? Just uh, you, You'll come up front. You don't have to say anything. You just have to kind of mime some of the stuff. Anybody, let's, I don't see any hands yet. Any volunteers? Yes. Yes, thank you. Two. All right, we need four more. Anybody else? Rachel, yes, my wife. Awesome, count on you. Awesome. Okay. Okay, we need uh, two more. Two more people. 
Anybody? Bueller. Bueller. John, I see you getting up. Yes, Maria. Yes, come on. Okay, so we're going to act this out. Um, Rachel, can you be the uh, demon-possessed slave girl? (laughs) You're going to go over here. Um, And John, you're going to be Paul. And I'm sorry, your name? Melina. Melina. Okay, Melina, can you come up here? And you're going to be Silas. And you guys, can, you guys are going to be walking slowly across. You guys start over here. But once I start reading the passage, you'll start slowly walking across. And Rachel, you can mime like you're really angry, okay? And you guys are going to pretend like you're really annoyed with her. And then when I say, you're going to turn around and say something to her. And then, um, all right, Casey, if you could uh, be the magistrate up there, it'd be perfect. And then um, why don't you come down here, Tom? And you, I'm sorry, Bob. You can come down and sit right here. You can uh, be the jailer. Um, and what, what other role am I missing? We got Paul and Silas. I think I'm missing somebody. Um, we'll see. Well, uh, why don't you go stand up with Casey, you know, with, with the magistrate. All right, great. So you can open your Bibles to Acts 16, and uh, I'll be reading it. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, these men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. That's you, shouting at them. Yep. You don't have to say it, just okay. macked it out. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. When her owners realized, oh, that's right, uh, you're an owner. That's, that's right, you're, you're her owner, Okay. You go over here. That's the person I was missing. When her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas. So you can come over here and seize them. Seize Paul and Silas and dragged them to the marketplace to face the magistrate, the authorities. Yes. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews, and they're throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. So start beating them with rods. Pretend. Don't actually beat them. (laughs) After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, which is down here. You guys are thrown into prison. Come sit down here. And the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them... You can put them in the inner cell. I did not... I put you in the show because you're, you know, yeah, I, this is a coincidence, I swear. <laughs> um, uh, the Jaman, jailer commanded them to guard carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And you're going to go over here and fall asleep, I guess. Yep. There we go. <laughs> About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. You guys are singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. Everybody drum roll on your laps. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. You guys are loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself. He thought the prisoners had escaped, 
But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We are all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. So now you guys baptize him. They were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house. Now you bring them into your house and sets a meal before them. It's your table. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. The end. <laughs> you guys have feet. Thank you. So I want you to just take a second and turn to your neighbor. What did you notice about this story? Would you get, just uh, chat a little bit and talk about one thing that you noticed that maybe you liked or didn't like about the story. God, thank you for this story. Thank you for your word. I pray now as we dwell in this story that it would dwell in us, that this story would bring to life the things that need to be brought to life, and that this story would put to death the things that need to be put to death. Do your work in us, Jesus. Amen. So Paul and Silas are walking along, and a few other disciples too, through some territory that uh, is being hostile towards them. They're experiencing persecution. This woman is yelling after them. They're getting annoyed. Have you ever been in that stage where there's some conflict that you're not sure if you should address or not? Do I actually address this? And if I do, will it get even worse than it is? These people are followers of Jesus. They're called to carry out the ministry of Jesus. And so Paul knows that if he turns around, he's going to help set this woman free by the power of Jesus. But he also knows that it'll probably lead to more persecution. So what does he do? He puts it off for a while, puts off the decision. How many of us do that when we're in a tight decision like that? Okay, I know it's going to get worse if I do the right thing. So I'll just put it off, put it off. Finally, he can't put it off any longer. He decides to turn around and cast the demon out. He follows Jesus. Do things get better for him because he did that? Does he all of a sudden feel this sense of satisfaction and peace that everything is going right in the world? No, he doesn't. He gets persecuted. He gets dragged before the magistrates with Silas and severely flogged and beaten. And then he gets dragged into the inner cell of a prison. The torture chamber is what it was when they put the feet in the stocks and they spread your legs apart and they torture you. They're in there all night. Paul and Silas choose to follow Jesus and things don't get better for them. They get worse. I think our narrative is, well, my life's not going so well. I'll choose to follow Jesus and things will start turning up for me. Things will go better for me. Things will get happier and easier. Or they should. And then when it doesn't, when that honeymoon period is over where we, follow Je- we choose to follow Jesus and we're starting to actually live his ways out and realize there's some opposition here. Things aren't as easy as I thought they would be. This is much harder for me than I thought it would be. We go, well, this must not be right then. 
because I, I thought I chose to follow Jesus and meant my life got better. And so we avoid those hard things. Maybe we put off the conflict even longer with the slave girl. We say, all right, I'm not going to actually address those things. I'm not going to live in the life of Jesus. I'm not going to obey him because it's going to lead to more conflict. So we avoid those things, especially in West Michigan. I mean, most of us would have just gone home and talked about it with our spouse, you know, how annoying this person was, and not actually confront it directly. But Paul and Silas choose to follow Jesus. It presents us with a totally different kind of narrative that we follow the crucified one. Francis Chan says in his book, Letters to the Church, we pursue Jesus and suffering always accompanies him. That we follow the crucified one, the one who says, come follow me, take up your cross. We're going to die to ourselves. That's the journey we're on. That's the destination, is to die to ourselves. So we can expect that following Jesus will lead to more suffering, not less. Which doesn't seem like good news at the first outset, does it? Doesn't seem like something most of us want to do, which is why the followers of Jesus were so few. There were so few people following Jesus. And in our lives, are we willing to look at Jesus and say, actually, I do want to follow you to the cross. I'm willing to do the hard thing. I'm willing to face opposition and persecution and suffering, either my suffering or the sufferings of others. I'm willing to endure that because that's part of the story. That's part of the package. That's what we signed up for. John and Tina, that's what you signed up for. Those of us who have committed ourselves to Christ are committing ourselves to follow the person who's going to the cross. It's not an easy journey. So I've been talking to some people this last few weeks. I talked to a, a woman who goes here who, who um, travels from, uh, does house visits for her work, seeking to help people. And um, it's really part, I mean, as you reflect on it, it's an image of Luke 10, going from house to house, healing, proclaiming the good news. And it's part of her job is to go from house to house and help heal people. And um, was feeling frustrated because people weren't receiving her work were being, uh, you know, non-cooperative. Just thinking, well, is this really the place I'm called to be? Is this really the place I'm called to be? Because I'm not feeling like this is working out. I feel like I'm, I'm encountering more opposition than it ought to be. Is this a sign that God is leading me to move to another career? Well, it might be. It might be. But she's going to work tomorrow, I'm guessing. She's going to work tomorrow. So how do we follow Jesus in that circumstance? How do we follow Jesus day to day? Whether or not he calls us to another career, whether or not he decides to do something with us months, weeks, years down the road, how do we follow Jesus in every day? And are we going to avoid those things and say, well, I must be called to a different career because things are getting hard now? Or do we lean into those things and say, well, Jesus is calling me to enter into those spaces and experience the grace and presence of Jesus in the midst of suffering and not avoid it? talking to somebody else, encountering a similar thing at work, who's trying to stand up for the rights and the, the humanity of others in his work and being asked to do other things, being asked to go against his morals or ethics. Does this mean that I'm called to go to a different career? It might be. But for Monday morning, when we go back into work, what do we do then? Do we choose to enter into those things and, and speak the truth and speak grace and stand up for the broken and vulnerable and declare that Jesus' love is what is most defining about me? Or do we say, well, I must not be called to this. I must have to go somewhere else where it's easier or where the grass is greener. Someday that might be the case, but for now, 
What is God's call in the midst of the suffering? Is there a place for that in our narrative of how, what it means to follow Jesus? Is there a place for engaging in the conflict in order that Jesus' love and grace would be known more fully? Or maybe you're a missional community leader. I was talking to a missional community leader recently who was saying, this is getting really hard. I'm being asked to do more and more for the sake of others. And my life is, is being called into account. And it would be easier for us to just keep things the way they were. Just go back to the way things were. And he said, but I can't do that anymore. Because I think what's more true than the fact that we pursue Jesus and suffer, suffering always accompanies him is the fact that Jesus pursues us. We are in his hands. And we can't be let go. We can't get out of his hands. He's got us. And so Jesus chases us down, and when we say, well, what if I could just get my life back the way it used to be before I felt that conviction of the Holy Spirit, before I felt called to serve the poor, before I felt called to love my neighbor and love my enemy, things were a lot easier if I could just get back to that. And Jesus is saying, no, I've got you now. (laughs) If you do that, it's going to be even harder. Trust me, it's going to be even harder. Hebrews 12 says this, see to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they, the Israelites, let me see if I, can I see, still see that? If they did not escape, the Israelites, if the Israelites did not escape uh, when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time, in the Old Testament, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The words once more indicating, indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. What is the writer of Hebrews saying here? Saying, now that we are in God's grasp, we can't escape his call. If we choose to disobey, we are going to experience the consequences of that. The fact that we're refusing God, and he is, we're clinging to these things that are going to ultimately be shaken. That we're grabbing, we're tying our lives to things that God is shaking loose. But if we choose to follow Jesus, he's leading us to the cross, to death, to self. Either way, God is shaking all of creation so that the things that are not of God would pass away, and that only the things that of God's kingdom would remain, which I think is a great image for this passage of the prison being shaken literally through an earthquake. And what passes away, the chains are loosed and the doors fling open. Those things have been shaken. And what remains? What is standing at the end of it? As a church, this is part of our story. It's part of our story of discerning together where is God calling us? How is God calling us to be church? Over the last 10 years, we've entered into a missional discipleship journey because we started to realize that, hey, we're doing a really good job of gathering together on a Sunday morning and having programs and events. But we're wondering, are we actually living the way of Jesus together? Are we actually living this out together? Or are we just doing the Christian thing? Are we just doing the church thing? So we had to make some hard decisions. Do we actually address it? Or just keep going the way things are? are going. It's much easier to just keep going this way because it's normal, it's acceptable. This is just how you do church. This is what 
you know, brings the most people in the doors, to give the most money, to keep coming to the things, to make us feel like we're doing a good job. But when we actually ask the question, how is Jesus calling us to be disciples? Are we actually living into our identity as baptized Christians called to live a different way? Are we actually doing that? And we have to make some changes to the way we're doing things to say, we're not going to to favor this or this. We're not going to do things because they'll get us more money. We're not going to do things because more people will come. We're going to do things because this this is what we feel like the, the life of Jesus looks like in this context. And many of us have been part of that journey, and we know that it's much harder. We experience a huge decline when we made that, those kinds of decisions. And every time we make a decision like that, we lose more people, or people go away, or, you know, it's harder together to continue on. Is that a sign that, that God is no longer present with us, or that we need to go back to doing the way, things the way we, we were doing them before? No. It's a sign that we're following the way Jesus and it's okay. We have to choose whether we're going to please um, the most people or whether we're going to please Jesus. And that's a hard decision each one of us has to make. And so I talk with Matt weekly about, do, are we going to do this or are we going to try to follow Jesus this week? And we, we can't help ourselves. Jesus is pursuing us. If we go towards pleasing the most people, there's, there's a conviction on our hearts Jesus pursues us and doesn't let us go. And if we choose to go towards Jesus, things are harder. They're trimmer. They're not as exciting. Each of us has to bear this with with our own context, with our church. We also have to ask these questions of our jobs, of our families. Are we willing to follow Jesus knowing that it's going to cost us? The cost is high. One of the things I love about this passage, and one of the things that really strikes me, is that the prison doors fly open. Remember the earthquake, prison doors fly open. Paul and Silas stay there. They stay there. They didn't run out. They didn't say, I would have thought, earthquake from God, prison doors are flying open. This is, there's no clear of a sign that I'm supposed to run out of the doors. Get out of here. Get myself free. Right? Aren't some of us going, I wish God would just write a message in the sky, like just tell me what to do. And these prisoners get a message from the sky. Doors are opened. Except they stay there. Why do they stay there? It's almost as if to them the prison doors don't even matter. It's almost like they weren't defined by the prison anyway. They stay, they stay there. Their identity was so secure that they had already been crucified with Christ. They'd already been set free. The whole night they were singing hymns and praying prayers. I wonder what that would have sounded like. And I don't know if they were, you know, happy, clappy songs <laughs> necessarily, but I do know that as Jews they knew the Psalms. That was their song book, so to speak. That was their repertoire. And the Psalms go through all the emotions, praising God, for God's faithfulness, experiencing the depths of lament and sorrow and anger about what their current circumstances, petitioning God, God save us, rescue us. That as they sang through these psalms, all of the emotions probably were washing over them of their persecution, and they're trusting God with all of it. 
letting God lead them in the midst of the prison, accepting their identity as children of the Most High God. Um, this week, I was, uh, I was reading Psalm 71. I wonder if this would be one of the psalms that they sang. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, rescue me and deliver me. Turn your ear to me and save me. Be my rock of refuge to which I, all, I can always go. Give the command to save me, for you are my rock and my fortress. Can you imagine them singing that in the prison? Deliver me, my God, from the hand of the wicked, from the grasp of those who are evil and cruel. For you have been my hope, sovereign Lord, my confidence since my youth. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. As I was reading that psalm, that last verse uh, stuck out to me. From birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. Um, The night before, I had been uh, going through my files. Rachel was encouraging me to uh, clean up my desk downstairs. So I was going through my files. I was reorganizing things, and I came across like a 10-page paper that my supervisor, a former supervisor, had written out for me from another job. And it was a 10-page report about who is Brendan as a worker? What are his strengths and weaknesses? And I immediately felt like surrounded, like uh, exposed. You guys know what I'm talking about when you read those reviews? Like, what is it going to say? Do they, do they know me? Do they really know me? And uh, if they know me, are they going to punish me for that, for the way that I am? Or are they going to release, you know, release me from my responsibilities? Or am I going to keep my job? And so I remember just reading over this with all those emotions of like, oh, they, this person really knows me. This person was only my supervisor for about 10 weeks. And yet, they seem to know so much about me. And I read this verse, from birth I have relied on you. You brought me forth from my mother's womb. I will ever praise you. And I begin to hear God say, I've known you since birth, not just 10 weeks. You thought this person knew you so well after 10 weeks. I know you. And I immediately just felt this sense of being confined by the love of God who knows me and accepts me. Isn't that what we all need? To know that God knows who we are. And even though he knows who we are, he chooses to accept us fully, unconditionally. Being surrounded by the love of God. And I wonder if that's a little bit of what the apostles, Paul and Silas, were experiencing in the depths of the prison that no matter that they were surrounded by the walls of the prison, they were surrounded by the love of God. That that's what was most defining of them. That was most true of them. That they had been crucified with Christ and it's no longer them who lived, but Christ who lived in them. That how great the love of the Father that, that he has lavished on them. That they should be called children of God and that's what they are. That's what we are. That's what's most defining of us. Not our condition at work. Not the suffering that we're going through, not the pain, not the diagnosis. Nothing else is more defining than the fact that we are known and loved by God. And that gives the apostles an amazing amount of freedom that they don't even need to escape the prison. They stay there. Why did they stay there? Because they knew if they escaped, the jailer who does not know God is going to be killed. Either kill himself or he's going to be punished severely or killed by his authorities. 
So they stay for his sake. They're willing to endure the torture chambers in order that their jailer would come to know the grace and the love of their heavenly father. If we are identified first and foremost by the love of God, are we willing to endure the suffering that we experience for the sake of others? The jailer says, how am I going to be saved? How can I be saved too? I see and hear the hope that you had when you were in the midst of the torture chambers. When you were supposed to be crying and pleading for mercy, you were praising God in the midst of your suffering. I heard that all last night. And I felt the prison doors shake open with an earthquake. I experienced it. There is something different about you guys. There's something different going on. That even in the midst of suffering, there's something else that defines you that's greater than your suffering. I want some of that. That's what he says. He experienced something. He saw something. They didn't come thumping with a Bible. He saw the way they lived in the midst of suffering, and that was a witness to him of something that was far greater than any suffering, the fact that they were loved by God. So as we reflect on this story, I just have a few questions I'd like to ask. In what ways is your life countercultural? What ways is your life countercultural? If Jesus has claimed you, and if you follow him, if you claim to follow him, how is that making a difference in your life? If God were to shake your life, what would be left standing? And what would crumble? What are the things in your life that really won't last, that are not of God? And what are the things that you believe God will preserve into eternity? How do you handle pain and suffering? When you're encountering um, opposition or difficulty, pain, difficulty, how do you handle it? For which non-Christians are you willing to prolong your suffering in order that they would be free of their suffering? In other words, in order that they would know God's love. For which non-Christians are you willing to prolong your suffering in order that they would be free of suffering? Oh, I didn't read that right away. <laughs> For Paul and Silas, suffering was evangelistic, meaning people saw the witness that they bore in the midst of their suffering, and they turned to God because of it. How will your suffering right now become a witness for the gospel? We're going to reflect on those questions um, as we um, experience communion together. This story ends with the jailer being baptized, taking on that same identity, saying God's love is the thing that most defines me. And then they share a meal together. He ends up serving them. There's this uh, psalm, Psalm 23, where... Um, it says, uh, you know, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And here you see the jailer and his former victims coming together at a meal. And this is an opportunity for us to experience the reconciliation of God. It's also an opportunity for us to, to remember Jesus' suffering, the one who was willing to enter in for our sake, 
prolong his suffering in order that we would know God's love. And he, not, he didn't go into a prison. He went into a grave that sought to confine him. And three days later, the gravestone was rolled away with an earthquake, and he came out resurrected to show us God's love. And he didn't go. He stayed to remind us that God loves us. He's not, he doesn't have to escape. Jesus stays here by the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to celebrate a meal that reminds us of that. So if you um, want to proclaim this morning that Jesus is the most true thing about you, I encourage you to come forward and receive communion. I'll ask the people who are serving communion to please come forward. I'm going to say a prayer. And I encourage you, um, after the prayer, if you can come out to your left and uh, take some bread and dip it into the cup and then return back to your seats. We'll enjoy this meal together. So let me, uh, let me say a prayer. God, I thank you for your love, your love that chases us down, your mercy that doesn't let us go. You created us in your love. You formed us out of dust. And our lives are so short. But you called us to be one with you. We've turned away from you, God. We've let suffering and pain steer us away from what you've called us to. Jesus, thank you that you don't let us go. Thank you that you pursue us. Thank you that you chase us down and lead us back to the cross where we find life and resurrection and purpose and peace in the midst of suffering. Thank you that the night before you were betrayed, you took bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body given for you. Take it and eat it in remembrance of me. In the same way, you took the cup and you said, this is a new covenant I'm making with my blood that can't be taken away. Drink it in remembrance of me. Thank you, God, that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, We proclaim Jesus' death and resurrection until he comes again. We commit ourselves to following you, to living in your identity of love, even in the midst of suffering. Thank you for this meal. Holy Spirit, come, and may this meal be more than just bread and juice. May this meal be for us the very presence of Jesus, that we'd experience you, Jesus and know you more. You'll be captured by your love. You'd fill us and empower us by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.